Do you collect Doctor Who? With over a hundred Target books stacked up, you are definitely a Doctor Who collector. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who, including Target books, for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, you can learn a lot about Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Sylvester McCoy, and I play Doctor Who number seven on Doctor Who. Well, yeah, I could play Doctor Who number seven on something else. Anyway, you're listening to a rambling Doctor Who for the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels with a book. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the memorable task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations because they've got their brains sucked out by the... you know what I'm going with this. My name is Tony Witt and today we have an equally memorable three-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me... There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we welcome back a special guest, someone who makes my claim to be a so-called expert look like pure idiocy, <laughs> the fabulous Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hey. Hey. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PPS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you keep them in an invisible spacecraft that can only go between Earth and a space station that nobody knows about. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. I came up with that one off the top of my head, too. (laughs) I am so proud of myself right now. We'd like to welcome a new patron this month, Joseph Middleton Welling. Thank you so much for joining us, Joseph. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, Jane Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Yes, thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We finally, and I mean finally, 
finish our discussion of Tom Baker's penultimate season <laughs> with our discussion of Paul Schoon's fan novelization of Shada. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and Shada, adapted by Paul Schoon's from script by Douglas Adams that was never televised, published by the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club in 1989, 1991, and 2001. As of this recording in June of 2022, this title is currently out of print. It is available as a digital download, 86 pages. My god, where do we start with this one? Mm. Oh boy. As we said last time, this story, Shada, was meant to be the season finale. Though it's an open question whether it would have been a better one than Horns of Nymon, once we got it all together. Douglas Adams originally wanted to do a story in which the Doctor decides to retire from his adventures only to be constantly called back again, but producer Graham Williams hated that idea. Supposedly, Adams decided to wait out the clock on writing it, figuring that Williams would have to accept it once the time had ran out, but Williams made him go back and do the story we currently have. <laughs> Williams had two ideas with this story. He wanted it to address the idea of capital punishment and what a race like the Time Lords would do with their own criminals. And that gets a little lost in the story, to be honest. And because it would be his last story as producer, he wanted it to be memorable. It certainly achieved the latter goal, though not for the reasons he was probably hoping. The two of them initially collaborated on a story called Sunburst because Adams was at the time working on his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio scripts. Williams eventually decided that Adams should get sole credit for the scripts, and Adams set it at his alma mater, Cambridge, drawing on his experiences as an undergraduate. Chris Parsons and Claire Kitely were named after his friend Chris Kitely, and all of the names of the think tank people came from Greek islands since Adams had just vacationed there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Dennis, yeah, exactly, right? <clears throat> I guess you write what you know. Dennis Carey was cast as Cronotus, Christopher Neem was cast as Skagra, Daniel Hill was cast as Christ, and Victoria Burgoyne was cast as Claire. After some suggested changes from the higher-ups, they hired director Pennant Roberts, and away they went. And there were problems immediately. There were labor disputes bubbling within the BBC up to that point, and they disrupted the production of the previous two season finales. Labor action forced Pennant Roberts, the director, to abandon several things he wanted to do on the location shooting, which came first, including a night shoot. He'd also been denied to shoot in Adams' own college, St. John's, so they opted for St. Seds instead. Yeah, see what I did there. <laughs> When they got back into the studio, they completed the first three-day recording block, getting everything on Skagra's ship, the Think Tank station, and Cronotus's study taped. Then they returned two weeks later, did camera rehearsals in the morning, went out to lunch, and came back to find the studio doors locked and the taping schedule canceled. This was late November and the serial was due to air in January. Williams did try his best to remount the shoot a couple times despite the strike, but to no avail, and by late December he reluctantly decided Horns of Nymon would close season 17. This had to be a particularly bitter thing for him, given that he was already leaving due to his annoyance with Tom Baker, and now his last story would never be completed. Production unit manager John Nathan Turner had already been trailing Williams in anticipation of taking over as producer the following season. Get used to that name. You're going to be hearing it a lot soon. Now, here's where it gets really interesting, or maybe not. Maybe it's just me that's interested in stuff like this. 
I've joked before that Shada has the most versions of any Doctor Who story out there. It's not too far from the truth. Ian Levine, a superfan whose name we will hear again eventually, made the first attempt to combine the finished material with printed text in place of the unfinished material. That version was shown at Panopticon 5 convention in Birmingham. I guess that makes it the first version. That November, in 1983, the Five Doctors anniversary special was produced, and since Tom Baker had declined to participate, John Nathan Turner used the punting scene and a shot from the chase sequence with the sphere to represent the Fourth Doctor in Romana. Not quite a version of Shada, but there you go. In 1991, after some considerable success with videotape releases of Doctor Who specials, John Nathan Turner approached Tom Baker about filming inserts for the missing material, which Baker agreed to do on the condition he appear as himself and not in character. Special effects were added and refined, a music score by Kef McCullough was added, and David Brierley returned to record the remainder of Canine's dialogue. So that's the second official version, or maybe even the first official version, depending on what we consider official these days. In 2002, <laughs> Big Finish producer Jason Hay Ellery suggested doing an audio version of the complete story, which would be augmented with artwork by Lee Sullivan and released on the BBC website for the 40th anniversary. Tom Baker was unwilling to work with Big Finish this time, so Gary Russell, the writer, suggested that the events of the Five Doctors had somehow wiped out the Fourth Doctor's participation in the events of Shada out of history somehow, and the Eighth Doctor, as played by Paul McGann, would join with Romana and K-9 to set things right. It's, it's a bizarre version. Lala Ward came back as Romana, John Leeson came back as K-9, and everyone else is played by new actors. That's the third version. Ian Levine took another bash at the story in 2011, privately commissioning animation to fill in the gaps. Tom Baker refused to participate, surprise, surprise, so he hired Paul Jones to do an impersonation of the Fourth Doctor, which actually isn't that bad if you've seen that version. And John Leeson came back and did K-9 again since David Brierley had since died. That's the fourth version. 2017 rolls around. After the success of animated versions of stories such as Power of the Daleks, another hybrid live-action animated version was commissioned, and this time Tom Baker did agree to come back and voice the Doctor, as well as participating in a final live-action coda in character. Yes, he appears in costume, but he's the same age that he is in 2017. It Trust me, it, it works somehow. This version was presented in omnibus form and released as a download DVD and Blu-ray, and this is maybe the only time this particular story has ever been televised since BBC America showed it in 2018. So that's version 5. And finally in 2021, the 2017 version was re-released in episodic format with enhanced animation, which qualifies as the sixth version. I need a drink of lemonade before I can continue. Good God. <laughs> It's insane. Now, as far as the book, as he had not done with The Pirate Planet, Douglas Adams didn't novelize the story for Target and instead incorporated many of the concepts from the story, including the character of Professor Cronotus in his Dirk Gently Solistic Detective Agency books, much as he cannibalized his unproduced Doctor Who and the Cricket Man and made it into the third Hitchhiker's book. As such, there has never been an official Target 
novelization. And when I say that, I mean with the Target imprint on it. BBC Books did do a book, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it's not a Target novelization. We've previously read a novelization by the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club this year when we did their version of the Pirate Planet and compared it with the official Target version done by James Goss. Paul Schoons originally wrote this one with Jonathan Preddle way back in 1989. He revised it in 1991 and again in 2001, and that's the version we're discussing today. Now, I had to get on my soapbox for just a second. As for the one that BBC Books published in 2012, I need to explain why we're not discussing it, despite the critical acclaim some people have given it, and why I won't be referring to the author by name. If you'd rather skip this part, you can go straight to the date stamp I'm about to say, 1452. Thank you. Where the podcast will continue after this discussion. In a tweet a few years back, the author in question made disparaging remarks about transgendered people, and then two years later doubled down on those comments in a statement that read, I don't believe in gender identity. It is impossible for a person to change their biological sex. Now, this may sound like an instance of cancel culture gone mad, but I have very personal reasons for not wishing to put any more money in this man's wallet, nor to encourage others to do the same. As many of you already know, my daughter was born this March, and the person who gave birth to her is a transgender gay man. Now, I've always found this author's words repulsive, even when they weren't directed at me or people that I love, but now that they are, now that they affect my daughter's family directly, it's a deliberate and very personal decision on my part not to discuss or even acknowledge that version of the book beyond this point. If you choose to buy a copy of his works to read, that's your decision, and in fact I usually can say nothing but glowing things about his actual prose. But discussing it here would mean inadvertently supporting him and his position, and if he doesn't believe in gender identity, I don't believe in him. So there. <laughs> I was just going to add to what you were saying. Um, because of the controversy of said author, it's probably unlikely that this will receive the same treatment that the other missing targets like Resurrection, Revelation, the Daleks, Pirate Planet, and City of Death. BBC will probably not do a target imprint reprint you know, in these new batches that we're getting. So in some ways, Shada will remain the missing story. Yeah. What I would like to happen is for James Goss to do it and just yes. starts from scratch like he did with pirate planet give us the completion he would get the humor of it and i think he would make something rather wonderful of it so given the situation that you've addressed yeah let's have another version of um shot <laughs> you know and let james goss have a go at it because i think it does a great job with uh pirate planet and city of death mm -hmm. i absolutely agree yeah i absolutely agree because there's absolutely no fucking way <laughs> that's going to get a target imprint. No. Yeah, especially since, uh, from what I understand, he's kind of persona non grata at the BBC now because of those stances, so mm -hmm. just as well. Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Trey, do you have that in front of you? I do. The legendary lost Doctor Who adventure. Okay, I'm just giggling because... I'm watching Drag Race. I'm thinking about the legendary legend star. And, you know, so let me try that again. The legendary lost Doctor Who adventure. The Doctor and Romana visit Professor Cronotus, a retired Time Lord living at Cambridge University. The Professor wants to return an ancient and very powerful book to Gallifrey, but the book has gone missing. Skagra, an evil scientist, steals the book in the professor's mind and also takes Romana in the TARDIS. In order to stop Skagra, the doctor must discover the secrets of a notorious Time Lord criminal in a long-forbidden prison called Shada. 
Shada, Shada, yes. Ah. There's also a nice little blurb parallel to the d- targets that were released in 79, 80, 81, you know, around this. It says, this series of Doctor Who books includes the following titles. Doctor Who Resurrection of the Daleks. Doctor Who Revelation of the Daleks. Doctor Who in the Pirate Planet. Doctor Who in the City of Death. Doctor Who in Shada. Oh, that's right. You've got the print version. Which is a nice little nod to the Target era from if it had been done, most likely would have been done. So I think that's cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the print version, as I pointed out, no longer exists because the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club has said that they will not be doing any more print versions of the book or any of the books but those are still available at doctorwho.org.nz forward slash archive forward slash novelizations with an s instead of a z in novelizations all right well let's talk about first impressions then dalton what was your first impression of this one given to you so long ago (laughs) well not knowing anything about the story except that it was notorious yeah i didn't quite know what to expect it it has been a little bit since we've recorded so i've had some time to stew on it but then once i actually started reading it it reminded me of why i enjoyed the douglas adams stories that we have read there's a lot of wit and a lot of kind of back and forth with the doctor and the different characters in there. So I, I enjoyed it once I actually started reading it, but I don't know that it necessarily lives up to its, the nature that everyone, you know, that I I was hearing about it being this kind of uh, lost story. It, it's perfectly fine, but it, it wasn't, I don't know. It just didn't live up to maybe some of my own expectations. Okay. And Trey, what was your first impression of the story way back when? Well, I think what we have in front of us is the second way I experienced the story. The first way would have been that Tom Bacon narrated BBC Audio in 1991. And then I got this around 2001, 2002. So when I found out about the New Zealand fan club novelizations. My first impression of of this particular novelization is it satisfied my curiosity. Mm. How I feel about the story is very complex, I'm not sure, because every viewing or encounter I've had with any of these adaptations, including the most recent Blu-ray version, it's always been like, my first time viewing it has been, I'm curious to see what it's like, I'm curious to see what it's like, rather than, am I going to enjoy the story or see if the story is any good? In terms of the novelization, I think it is very workmanlike. I think it seamlessly fits into this era of Terence Dix's style of where it's a pretty much straightforward adaptation. It doesn't really expand on the story at all, but I can't really point out anything overly wrong with the prose. It doesn't build up any backstory or it doesn't really expand the story in any meaningful way. It doesn't do anything with point of view. So I, I think it's just kind of there for me. I'm not wild about the story itself, even the televisual versions that we have. But then I'm not a fan of Hitchhikers. That sort of Monty Python, Douglas Adams, absurdist style of British humor has never quite worked for me. And this is so dependent upon that, that if that's not to your taste, it's just kind of there. But at the same time, I think that's just a taste thing. So I I don't know if I would say it's bad. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. As for me, the, the first time I heard about this story was when I was at a camp for gifted children for the, during the <laughs> summer camp. And it actually, this was back when, you know, gifted children wasn't a euphemism. 
uh, and was there with someone, an older Doctor Who fan, a boy who's about two years older than I am, who obviously turned out to be gay. Surprise, surprise. And we talked late into the night about Doctor Who, and he brought up Shada and said, have you ever heard of this story? And I said, no. And he said, it, and you probably will never see it because they never completed it. And only a few years later did I find out that that was indeed true. And my first viewing of it was indeed that videotape version, which is not my favorite version of it. I'd have to say that the newest animation is probably more what I was hoping for with that story. But that being said, as somebody who is actually a fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, well... I think we'd better just get into it, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Well, what did we like about this book and the story? I like the premise of Skagra in his plan. You know, the famous line, I don't want the universe, the universe shall be me. The vanity of it. We're told that he's a major threat. We don't really see it as being as powerful as it is. But I think the concept of what the villain wants is a nice, interesting take. And I do like that idea of the, the universal mind and a different motivation. At the same time, it's one of the things I don't like because explanation of who Skagra is, where he comes from, and what motivated him in the first place is never clear. Oh, God, yeah. Admittedly, that's something that Schoons probably could have expanded on. I don't remember if the other version does. I vaguely recall that it might have done. But even then, it's not very terribly satisfactory. Yeah, he just seems like a standard villain to come in and do his whole business of taking over the universe, but in a different way. Yeah, the other version does give, give more of it, but it's tongue-in-cheek, and I don't want to say too much about it. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, Dalton, how about you? What did you find that you liked? Well, I was just going to say for a lot of this, since again, like I didn't know anything about the story, I thought that Skagra or Chronotus were going to end up being the master. And I don't know how many times I have <laughs> felt that in a story, but this kind of big scheme like like trey was saying that the idea of becoming all of the universe is something of that level of like wanting to be the end all be all they reminded me of the master so i was glad that it didn't end up being the master but it was giving me those kind of vibes so yeah i i agree with trey i did like that Again, like it, it's been it's been a little while since we've recorded and I hadn't had anything to read, but I did I, I kind of did enjoy the the Douglas Adams quips and the the ridiculousness, you know, at the beginning they're talking about a clock that's counting down in Roman numerals. Like <laughs> it's just there's this ridiculousness to bits and pieces of it that are kind of over the top for me, but I enjoy that kind of thing. Yeah, and that that's definitely an artifact of the televised story. That was someone's idea among the designers to do that. And I, I'm not sure if anybody actually caught Adam's naming the think tankers after Greek islands, but it sticks out on screen because you think, wait a minute, they're Roman numerals and they have Earth-sounding names. Mm -hmm. And it's like, um, okay... 
I, I guess we've drifted off into the bad stuff, but that's fine, because with this story, it's kind of hard to pull the two apart, isn't it? Yeah, it's very intermixed. Yeah. Admittedly, the thing that I think I like the most about this story is Cronotus, and Schoons really brings Cronotus to the page quite well. It's one of the best performances that I've seen Dennis Carey do in Doctor Who, even though that's that's not quite true. He's going to be... He's going to be cast in a story the in the coming season. I have a feeling that Dennis Carey is actually cast in the next season because this story didn't go out. Yeah, hmm. I think that's accurate. Yeah, because he is so good as Cronotus. And he's definitely one of my favorite alternate Time Lord characters. Though, I will say this whole business of, oh, if you're a Time Lord and you die inside your TARDIS and someone flips a switch accidentally, you can not only be revived, but also continue with your life after you return to a non-TARDIS environment. It's just kind of like, really? <laughs> it's a wonderful failsafe to have. Isn't it, though? Well, the, the techno-babble gobbledygook is really at an apex with this oh. season, and particularly this story. Yeah. The Doctor talking the ship into becoming a TARDIS. At one point, yes. telling her to change something from analog to digital, and it's like, seriously? Mm -hmm. We're not talking about recording. We're talking about turning something into a TARDIS. <laughs> I think going to a digital format is not necessarily going to make us forward in time either it's, yeah it is bizarre and that's going to change very quickly i'll talk more about this next time obviously but with the new regime under john nathan turner as producer and christopher h bidme the script editor the techno babble is going to be it's going to be worse in some ways but it'll be more grounded in reality and whether that's better or worse that's well your mileage may vary <laughs> Hmm. Other things we liked or disliked? I do really like the Cambridge setting, especially because I've visited Cambridge and I've, I've been there. And I, I do like the idea of the TARDIS as a little study where they, they read Charles Dickens and have tea with each other. And <laughs> um, the reveal, I think it's more effective on screen than it is on paper, but the reveal that the study is a TARDIS is a really cool moment um, when Claire accidentally messes everything up there and, yeah, I, I don't agree that it would bring Cronotus back, but but I like that moment that it's a TARDIS in disguise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, though I do have to wonder what Wilkin would actually... There's that scene where Wilkin tries to open the door to it, and there's this blue void. I'm thinking, <laughs> um, wait a minute. Does that mean that there's a section of the vortex just sitting there in the middle of Cambridge, and if Cronotus ever leaves with his TARDIS... Yeah, I'd worry about wandering cats. I, yes! <laughs> Well, that's Schrodinger's cat right there. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're right, Dalton, that there's a lot of wit in this story. There's also a lot of painfully self-indulgent humor as well. Yes. And I will agree with Trey with his dislike of Hitchhikers on one score. I, I love those books, but yes, the humor is painfully self-indulgent. And there are just as many jokes that don't land as jokes that do. Some of them being the one lump or two sugar joke. Yes. The fact that we have to have three tries well, word, that I mean, fucking thing. Sophomore can every sense of 
it's not quite sophomoric humor, but it could be very quite literally sophomoric humor, depending on when Chris is and Clara students. And <laughs> I don't know. And it, it does, I think it does remind me of the sort of humor that a certain type of student that I have um, has where like, you kind of go through that process. And I, I, you see this a lot in geek culture where you're trying to show off how clever you are, but you're not quite getting it. Mm-hmm. And I, I get a little bit of that vibe. I think um, the Cronotus room bothers me for the same reason that Dory from Finding Nemo bothers me. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's kind of blessed. It's meant for humor, but the the dottery forgetfulness, you know, you just ask a simple question and they respond and they it really strains my suspension of disbelief that someone could be that flaky or forgetful or eccentric. It's that dottiness for the sake of dottiness. Like, and I love characters like Amelia Rumford, who is dotty, but it's not, it doesn't, it seems to be a much more natural, less affected sort of dottiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree that Dennis Carey does a great job on the TV show of it, but it's just a little, and this is the writing, this is the dialogue. Um, it can't, so it's, it's not on the actor at all. That sort of character being that forgetful and absent-minded, it's, it's a cliche and it just gets old for me after a while. And I just feel myself getting impatient with the guy. It's like, oh, I forgot the milk. Oh, I forgot one thing that's just oh so important. And like the whole story drives on that. And I just, I just end up being annoyed. QT the monkey and Disney's Dumbo Circus on the Disney Channel as a kid did the same thing. And it always pissed me off then. So... <laughs> That that's my that's my issue with it. So much hinges on Cronotus, and I just find him kind of unbelievable and kind of annoying. Yeah, it's actually kind of a service to that character that Douglas Adams loved him so much that he did bring him back because you notice that post resurrection Cronotus is much easier to take than Cronotus when he was still alive. presumably Mm -hmm. because in coming back to life the TARDIS not only his TARDIS not only gave him uh, a dressing gown and a sleeping cap for some reason but it also seems to have reset his brain a bit because he's not the doddering old man from that moment onward and it's much easier to take the character right and it makes me wonder like maybe they're doing something really clever because I hadn't really made that connection that you just made yet but in a way, we encounter the Chronotus the way most other characters in the other story encounter the Doctor, where he just seems, you know, nobody could see, seem as stupid as he does, my dear, whatever Scarleone says. In a way, like what I'm saying is nobody could be as dotty as that. And so I don't take the character seriously, <laughs> but then he's really actually quite powerful. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is something that would have been clear had we gotten the full performance from Dennis Carey than rather just the study scenes. Because the stuff that where he gets really becomes Sally Avon isn't doesn't happen until some of the scenes on Shada. Right, right. I wonder too if it has something to do with him trying to hide who he is. Hmm. Because you you know, like you're saying, we don't really see we see less of that once he's kind of resurrected, but also once he's resurrected is when he does the mind switch with Claire, mm-hmm. which is kind of like the first tell that he's not all that he seems <laughs> right right so well the thing is if he's trying to show himself as a doddering old man he's doing it to the wrong people yeah <laughs> because he he's he's called the doctor and romana in to help him find this book which he had up until what five minutes before they showed up yeah 
And so if he's doing an act, he's really committed to the bit by this point because it's it works against him if that's what's going on. But you're right. He is very, very different. Yeah. Dalton, do, were you able to work out the Cronota Salievan connection or? I didn't spot it when he did the mind thing with Claire. That set off something with me, but I hadn't quite made the connection then. But when I finally got it was when they were in Shada and the doctor notices that he knows which way to go for the cell. And then I immediately said, yes, that is him. No doubt. Hmm, but good. but even that was before the doctor had put it together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it, it's good that that little bit of suspense is still in there because that's about the only suspense the story <laughs> has, really. Uh, I mean, you've got Romana in distress again, which is never a good look for Romana. <sighs> There's also the bit, and here's the thing. Until I actually saw another version of this story, I, and it, I wasn't aware that Romana going back into the TARDIS to get the milk and coming back and finding Cronotus injured and, you know, near death, I wasn't aware of how much that actually puts something of a distance between herself and the Doctor for a little bit, because we never got the TARDIS scenes filmed for this story. Mm-hmm. And the Doctor is pretty obviously upset with her for putting him in jeopardy like that just to go get milk but Schoons doesn't really capture it on the page either so I'm wondering if it was even emphasized in the script as much as it is in the performances we finally ended up getting yeah it, did, it didn't feel as you know the doctor seems disappointed but at the same time he's just like well you know it, it felt like she was just doing what the old man had asked her to do so Exactly. Ah, what else? What were some of the jokes we disliked the most? (laughs) Because mine is the time tot line. (laughs) Swear to fucking God, I hate that every time Lala Ward says it. I don't even see that as a joke. Really? (laughs) Yeah, I just thought like, it's so she, they, Gallifrey has nursery. I mean, I don't think, I took it in the same vein as kind of like in an upcoming story where they're on Gallifrey and the doctor recites a nursery rhyme to the companion about the tower. And, Mm. and I thought, I was like, oh, this is just like some Gallifrey lore. I, I wasn't particularly upset by it it i didn't i didn't think it was funny um (laughs) you know i didn't even read it as a joke yeah i i'm not sure i've known anybody who has found that line funny so i don't like the one the the joke you know newton yes you know then he just lists these famous scientists then he says you've got a lot to unlearn Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. that just kind of annoys me because and again this is like this is kind of like my issue with adams because adams is really smart and he knows the science and chris is a physicist and so i I get the point of like trying to you're trying to undo the knowledge of received wisdom i I understand the 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 point of view behind the joke but when you're dealing with the hard sciences does it make sense for a science fiction to undermine the hard sciences like that i'm probably spending too much time on it but it's always just rubbed me the wrong way for talking about jokes that aren't funny yeah Mm. it's also not the sort of line that christopher h bidmead would ever have let pass right 
because he is going to be all about the hard science and respecting the hard science, uh, sometimes to a fault. Whereas this goes too much in the opposite direction, and we get the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, setting analog-to-digital shit. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't work as well. I didn't understand all of the Earth figures that were locked up in the the Calabrian jail. Yes, yes. I don't either, because when we get to chapter 10, we get that list, and I don't know if it's in the original script. I don't know if it's in the uh, redone version, because my memory of it is unfortunately very poor. But we get a list of, oh God, who's on that list? Uh, Napoleon is one of the people on the list. Nero. One of the Borgias. Yeah. Yeah. Bodicea, for some reason, is in with the villains. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. Lady Macbeth. Who's a fucking fictional character. Right. What the hell? Well, and I I know that I'm pretty sure I've read that the original plan is that they were going to bring some old monsters as the prisoners, like a Dalek, a Cyberman, and a Zygon. Yes, and they're Mm -hmm. listed. They're listed briefly. So, but the humanoid prisoners, yeah. It's just weird. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And I can see that Schoons at that point is trying to talk about the idea of freezing a prisoner alive, being chidingly considered humane by a villain. Because, strangely enough, the next time we read one of these New Zealand novelizations, that's going to come up again. Hmm. But it's just a... uh, I don't know why that would be included. It does make more sense for... Though, if you think about it, really, does it make any sense for Daleks or Cybermen or Zygons to be on... Uh, Time Lord prison satellite. No. <laughs> you just kind of kill them whenever you come across them. Yeah. <laughs> then it just makes you wonder, too, like, what did they do singularly that was so bad that, you know, they had to be locked away? Yes. It would make sense for other Time Lords to be on that satellite, but not characters from Earth who have already died, supposedly. Yeah. Yeah. It is a very odd moment. A joke that does work for me that I do like is I like the lead up to what would have been the cliffhanger to part three, where the the scene where like, let's out with the logical computer by convincing it I'm dead. But then the <laughs> computer kind of reverses things and says, well, dead men don't need oxygen. I'm like, you know, I'm supposed to be rooting for the doctor, but it's kind of like, yeah, this is what happens when you're trying to be a little bit too clever. And and because it is logic, since it is an elegant argument, and this is just the natural extension of that the doctor hasn't anticipated, I think it for a witty type story and for an intellectual story, I think that that makes for a good cliffhanger. And And I do like that how it's resolved is then logically because he had argued for the release of Chris, then logically the life support would come back on. So it, it all just makes sense. And I, I think it's very clean and it makes for a good cliffhanger, but it makes for a decent and fair resolution as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I, I appreciated that moment quite a bit. Yeah. It's enough to make you forget Cronotus beating his hearts in Gallifrey and Morse. <laughs> oh God. At least briefly. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's the problem with the story, I think. It does have some bits that work quite well, but then it has some bits that work equally unwell. (laughs) They drag down the bits that work well at all, which is just horrifying. That's what people tend to remember about the story, things like that. Well, and, and the thing is, is the backstory, all these explanations, like even in Schoons' novelization, 
towards the end of the final chapter before we get to the epilogue. It just says, yeah, they had to return all the prisoners and take Skagra back to Shada and let the Time Lords deal with it. And that, that was quite a busy task. And, well, let's just skip forward to now they're in, back in Cronotus' study. And so there's <laughs> that's a very rushed resolution. And just like we've mentioned, the lack of Skagra's backstory, maybe if we weren't repeating the one lump or two joke three times... We would have had some time for some of that story <laughs> to happen. So it just seems very undisciplined. And, and and again, we're looking at an era where you've got two personalities like Tom Baker and Douglas Adams just being unconstrained. So you can see why the changes are coming. Although I do really like season 17 and the Blu-ray that they just released has made me realize how much I do love it. But I also recognize its faults and why people did feel like it needed a change. The parallel universe of the question is, had the story not gone unfinished and had it just been finished as it was meant to be, would it be regarded as a great epic conclusion or would it be kind of like another invasion of time Armageddon factor? And I think it would be more of the latter. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> because it's got that feeling of, oh my God, we're at the end of the season. We don't have much of a budget. <laughs> Let's do what we can with what we've got. Let's get one of the old Daleks and old Cybermen costumes and Zygon costumes out of storage and they can be prisoners. Yeah, it, it's got that feel to it. And I also wonder, well, I, I really should ask this, trying not to refer to the other version of this. Do we feel like Schoons has done a pretty good job of representing what finally we got? Or do you think he's cleaving maybe just a little too close to the script? I'll go back to what I was saying earlier. I think the goal of this was to plug in the missing gaps of the novelizations. And if the goal is to novelize a story the way Terrence Sticks would have done around the 1979, 1980, 1981 era, I think he's done a pretty admirable job. But what he's done is he's succeeded in capturing Dix at his weakest and so I, I think as an imitation of a Target novel of the time, yeah, it's pretty good. He does a good job. The problem is, is the Target novels of that time were, as we've said, at the weaker era, um, which we're just coming out of, thankfully. Um, yes. But So there's there's nothing that I can find fault with, but there's nothing that I can find particularly to praise. I, I It reads it. I think it does really show that how much of it is the humor and the dialogue is so reliant on delivery because it is comic. In comedy, comic dialogue doesn't translate well on the page necessarily if you don't have the actors delivering it in a certain way. Yeah. You can appreciate the wit, but it's not going to elicit more than a chuckle. Yeah. If Adams had written this himself, then maybe, just maybe, that humor would have translated to the page a bit more. I do find that that other version kind of goes a bit overboard and tends to try to emulate Adams and try to be more than Adams at times and it kind of overworks it. Right. Here Schoons is not doing that and that's fine because we really don't need him to <laughs> but by the same token it's yeah it doesn't necessarily stand out. Uh, Dalton what do you think? I was just gonna say um, we ran into that with I don't remember which other novelization. I think it may have been one of the David Fisher ones where it felt like he was trying to out Adams. Adams. Creature from the pit. Yeah. Yep. I don't think that this novelization was that level of it, 
but it did yeah it did feel like I, like i was saying it didn't live up to kind of that expectation of you know this is the season ending story from douglas adams yeah this one just kind of it works it you know like like trey was saying it did get some chuckles out of me the humor though isn't that deep though it's not something that i'm gonna like remember two weeks from now and be like man that was a good joke one of the jokes that i do really like and i think tony you'll appreciate this one as a teacher is the doctors and romana are saying to cronota something like we heard the terrible babbling of voices or something and <laughs> cronota says oh it's just undergraduates i'm trying to get it banned you know what yes <laughs> yes uh, so I, I do appreciate that one Yes, I would very much love it if undergraduates didn't talk. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I absolutely agree. Sparkling little bits like that, but it's hard to believe that this story was produced in the same season that produced City of Death. By the same author, almost. By the same author, yeah. It's insane that they should be kind of close to each other in standing, and they're simply not it's as if douglas adams shot his wad with city of death and uh came to this one and was like okay let's just get this over with so i can go over continue writing my hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy scripts and get my money because that by that point that was exactly what the deal was yeah he was ready to go on his way out the door yeah well like you said at the beginning he basically waited and waited and waited and the producer made him finish whatever we have here so it's like he really probably did not enjoy this no no i imagine not i do have to wonder what that original story would have been like though if he had decided to have a story in which the doctor retires only to be called out of retirement again and again and finally realizes oh to hell with it i'm just gonna have to go back and do this that's a very modern concept Mm-hmm. I I could kind of, in fact, it kind of informs uh, Capaldi's last season where he's taking care of Missy and he's become a professor at a university for however many decades or what have you to do so. And it's like, okay, that's an appealing concept. Whether or not it would have worked in 1979, uh, that's another story. Well, and that's kind of like a callback to the third doctor, too, basically kind of trying to live his life on Earth and the Time Lords keep making him do things for them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's very innovative, but I think Adams probably wouldn't have been doing it for the sake of innovation. He would have been doing it for the sake of just giving himself something more interesting to write about. Mm-hmm. And that's not bad. No. That's not a bad thing. Still, that's not how you make TV. Yeah. What else do we want to say about this book? The Doctor seems very combative towards K-9. Oh, yes. <laughs> kind of talks down to him a couple of times and just generally seems a little annoyed with him. Well, that would definitely be mirroring Tom Baker's own annoyance with <laughs> K-9 at that point. Okay, so that that at least is coming from somewhere. Yeah, I, I, I'm I almost certain if you look at the stories where David Brierley is voicing K-9 that the Doctor is not as kind to K-9 in those stories as he is when John Leeson is voicing him. Well, yeah, the, the Tom and John got on famously. Mm-hmm. and But we don't... 
David Briley, it was kind of like, it was a job. And, you know, John Leeson would get on all fours and actually act out canine in rehearsal. And David Briley, by all accounts, is kind of like, yeah, no, I'll just kind of sit here and be on the side and do the ADR type stuff. So, and maybe Tom was just too busy focused on Lala at that point, too. So. <laughs> yes, which is interesting. When I was reading the history of the making of the story on the um, Shannon Patrick Sullivan site, it talks about the fact that Tom Baker and Lala Ward by this point had, they'd come to this conclusion that their romance at the beginning of the season was somewhat unprofessional and maybe they should stop for a while. That wouldn't last, obviously. Okay, so like <laughs> that's that brings up the sort of joke that I just really bothers me in the story. So it's towards the end, and I like the bit where the doctor has forgotten that his own mind is in there and that it's Roman who says, may I remind you, your mind's in the sphere as well. And he's like, oh, that's brilliant. You're a genius. And it should stop there. Like, you know, we've seen that sort of thing before where the companion thinks of something that the doctor hasn't thought of and the doctor praises the companion. But then they're in this freaking crisis situation and you've got all this business. Let's take a medal out and do this little ceremony. And then before the doctor's doing the vortex cross, he's speechifying and doing this. And even Romana says, oh, get on with it. You know, and it's just, which is great that she does that. But again, the comedy is moving away from the character. So how can we take the situation seriously, which we're being told over and over is a really grave threat when it can't be too fucking grave if they're able to make all these jokes during the final episode and and do all these this banter and yeah it doesn't seem to arise naturally from the characters it's more of like how can we insert some funny business here and this is again probably where it's it's a combination of probably Tom and Douglas going let's make it funny let's make it funny let's make it funny which is why they're about to go the get the other extreme where it's all like no jokes here which we'll be getting in the next couple stories yeah and that reminds me of two things in quick succession the first is in a completely different franchise in uh star trek discovery they seem to find time to make speeches during crises that go on and on forever and it's like uh guys there's a specific scene where Michael Burnham is speaking with her half-brother Spock, and they're on an asteroid, and you can see the space battle happening in the background, and they're having this touching, memorable, emotional moment, but the space battle's happening in the background, (laughs) and there's potential death going on behind them, and you're like, uh, could we hurry this along, seriously? It's not for comedic purposes, but it certainly just brings the tension to a halt. It, it interferes with the suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's like they've they've found a pocket universe specifically for soliloquy. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very good. Yes, exactly. And the other thing that it reminded me of is that the fourth doctor seems to be in a in an award giving mood this season because in the the last story he had a ribbon to give to K-9 when they were facing Mm -hmm. death. It's like, oh my God, between that and the gold stars he's got in his pocket, he might as well be a teacher. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Anything else we want to say about this one? Uh, (laughs) Okay. Apparently not. I'm looking looking through my, my notes, but I feel like we've probably covered 
I think we probably yeah. have. Yeah. <laughs> so, shall we go to Goodreads? Yes. Yes, we shall. <laughs> Let's do it. As we always do. Let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is four, which is astonishing, but it's also based on the amount of reviews. There may be only like 10 actual reviews. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davis gives it 3.7 stars, which he says he will round up to four and says, I had originally intended to do separate reviews for the two versions, fan and official, of this story in book form, but thought better of it for two reasons. Firstly, the author who shall not be named, that's my phrasing, not Dave's phrasing, isn't worth the effort, but also a review of his book can easily be obtained by assuming the opposite of what I say about this fan-written book. I absolutely love this book. It is simply written, so it doesn't overshadow Douglas Adams' dialogue, and it has the feel of the original Target books. There's one bit I'm not keen on, though it's brief and quickly passed over, so it doesn't spoil the rest of the book. The prisoners that Skagger releases on his way, he thinks, to find Sally Avon are a mundane bunch from Earth's history and hardly seem worthy of the attention of the Time Lords. So what were they doing on Shada? Yeah, exactly. That glitch aside, Paul Schoon should be commended for not throwing in several thesauruses of words in an attempt to make himself look clever. Likewise, he should be commended for not endlessly repeating lines in an attempt to make himself look witty. In short, this book should have been the official novelization. Well, it still could happen. Also, a user named No, seriously, his name's No, gives it five stars. Is he a doctor? I don't think so, but (laughs) he could be. And says in a review written before the BBC Books version, Right now, this book remains the only complete Tom Baker version open to the public, and to give it credit, it does a good job at that. It simply wants to tell the lost story while still being in the same writing tone of Adam's. At many points in the book, I found myself genuinely laughing out loud, particularly where the doctor gives Romana an I am a genius badge, so that has some fans, Trey, I'm afraid. I should also note that it really helped me understand the plot and that I had not known when the sphere took a doctor of the copy's brain before. Yeah, that's not made terribly clear in the VHS version. One day I should try reading it whilst watching the episode, for that would surely clear things up. He also posted an update, this reviewer, after the official one came out, and says, I've listened to an audiobook of the new book, and this version is much better. Seriously, just keep your money and read this one. Well, there you go. And finally, RC, no relation to the cola, gives it four stars and says, This adaptation reads like one of the better Target novelizations, despite the original scripts being rather average. That's probably the truest thing ever said. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this one? I'm going to give this one a three. Again, it just it doesn't live up to the notoriety that I was expecting out of it. It, It's serviceable. It's not the most horrible piece of trash I've ever read. But ultimately, (laughs) like the story is kind of just bleh. And I'm kind of glad we're done with it. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> Understood. And Trey, out of five stars, what would you give this? A 2.5. You know, the, my standard of how well does it novelize the story. And I'm putting on par with the Terrence Dick's late Tom Baker stories, where it's a good, solid transcription of what we see on screen. It's a way to relive the story. And, and there's nothing, there's, there was no prose that made me cringe, or there was nothing that I thought was bad. But it's it's relatively straightforward, and the story itself isn't my favorite. So right smack in the middle, two point five. Okay, and as for me, I'll I'd also give it a two point five for much the same reasons that both Trey and Dalton give it. Mainly because I would love to see this story novelized by someone on the same caliber uh, of James Goss, if not James Goss himself, because it does have some potential. As long as you have somebody who's not trying to out Adam's Adams when they do it, someone of Goss's ability who actually is as good as Adams, if not better in some ways, I would I would argue. Schoons is a serviceable writer. That's what it comes down to. Very workmanly. I think that's what you said, Trey, and you're absolutely right. He's very Terrence Dixian. It's very script to page. And the fact that he didn't have all of the script to begin with actually probably helps this a little bit, maybe? Though, you have to wonder, if he had actually had the shooting scripts, whether or not he would have felt a little freer to do some more stuff with it. But there's not much stuff done with it. So, yeah, that's where it is. It's 2.5. Well, thank you all. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we're going to be backtracking a little bit and looking at the new target releases of David Fisher's novelization of The Stones of Blood. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in order of no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter, we're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening, stay safe, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.